Kara. Here, what are you doing? So next week, although it'll actually be like two weeks ago once this actually gets posted, is my birthday. And I am going to be like fully two weeks post vaccine dose number two, the 27th of April. And my birthday treat to myself is going to be going to the gym and lifting weights. And I'm like so excited about this. Yeah, I'm waiting for my kids to get their second dose so I can go to the gym too. Um, Hopefully it's not going to be my birthday before I do that. Yeah, that would be really bad. That's a ways away. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. Let's talk about who we have on the show today, Mecca Burris, and she is a PhD student studying biological anthropology with concentrations in food anthropology and food policy. And she's at the uh, University of Indiana with Andrea Wiley, who we've had on the show before. So she received her master's in applied anthropology from the University of South Florida and her bachelor's in journalism. So she's got some fun connections to you uh, and anthropology from Indiana University. And her research is focused on food insecurity among various populations in Costa Rica and the US, as well as growth and development among adolescents. And she is particularly interested in the relationships between food insecurity, life history trajectories, and long-term health, as well as the period of adolescence as a unique evolutionary adaptation among humans. And I must thank her even before she comes on for having a really nice succinct description of who she is and what she studies on her website, because that made my life easier. And then she actually reached out to us to be on the show, which mm-hmm. says something about her journalism background, maybe. And she's one of the student reps for HBA. Yes, she is. I was a journalism major at IU before I dropped out. So many connections. It's- hey, Mecca. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And as Chris said, you are one of the very few. You might be of like one of two people who have emailed us and asked like, hey, can I be on the show? And we wish more people would do that because... It makes our jobs a lot easier, and we know you'll be enthusiastic when you come on. So maybe before we start with our typical question, what inspired you to contact us to be on the show? Oh, yeah. The breakout session at the meetings, uh, one of you had mentioned to, you know, reach out if you want to be on the show. And I thought, hey, like, why not? I have a paper coming out soon, so I have something to talk about. So, yeah, I followed your advice. That is awesome. So the way we always start is to find out how the scientist is made, right? Hence the show title, how the sausage is made, sausage of science, da, 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 for those of you not following along at home. And so what we'd really like to start off knowing is more about you. What is your background? What got you interested in anthropology? What got you interested in going to grad school in anthropology? How'd you end up at IU? All that good stuff. So I feel like my story is not too dissimilar to many in that I didn't know what anthropology was until I got to undergrad. So I went to Indiana University for my undergrad and I was actually a journalism major and we had to have, it was called a like area of focus outside of journalism. So like a minor basically. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I remember meeting with my advisor and telling her that I was interested in learning about other cultures because really I came from a small town and there wasn't a lot of diversity. I didn't get to travel much as a kid. So I was very curious about other places and I thought it would be super cool to like be a travel journalist and you know work for National Geographic and be the next Martha Gellhorn. So she uh, recommended taking an anthropology class and I did, I took culture, health and illness which was taught by Sarah Phillips at IU. And I, like everyone, fell in love, thought it was fascinating. And I felt like 
the perspectives, you know, they matched my own. And so the next semester I took intro to bioanthropology. And after that, I decided to double major in anthropology and journalism. That was actually my first exposure to evolutionary theory also was in bioanthropology because I wasn't taught that where I was from. And so I was uh, obsessed. I was like, this is so cool. It makes sense. I was telling everyone about it. So are you a Hoosier? I am. I'm from Southern Indiana. Mm-hmm. Where? Um, a little town called Mitchell, Indiana. Okay. Yeah. So I grew up in Indiana. That's why I asked. I started off at IU and I was also a journalism major. I ended up in anthropology for the exact same reason, except I am a IU dropout and I ended up moving to New York and doing it there. I'm, I was just curious. So you were inspired by the folks at IU. And so what motivated you to, to go on to grad school? What's your aspiration? Well, I actually took some time off in between undergrad and grad school. So I knew I wanted to be an anthropologist, but I knew you had to get a higher degree to really do anything. So I was burnt out at the time. And so I actually used my journalism degree for a couple of years and worked in like graphic design and public relations. And then what motivated me finally to go back was I actually went on my honeymoon to Costa Rica and we spent a lot of time talking to the locals because my husband and I aren't real big tourist people. I'm sure all anthropologists are that way. So we just started learning a lot about food insecurity. And that was my first realization that it's this sort of larger global problem and not just at the local level, but it's caused by globalization and tourism. And um, it was really eye-opening. And so I basically immediately applied for grad school and I got back and I applied to programs that study food insecurity in Costa Rica and ended up getting into University of South Florida to work with Dr. David Himmelgreen. Yeah. Yep. Did my master's there in applied anthropology and then decided to keep going because I really actually enjoyed academia and I enjoy teaching and I enjoy the flexibility. So I decided to pursue a PhD, which brought me back to Indiana to work with Dr. Andrew Wiley. Yeah, we've had Andrea on the show before, and we love Andrea and all the things she does. But you've segued really well and kind of to the next question. But also, you have a really rich background that you bring to academia with your journalism and graphic design and all those things. And so that's really nice to hear more about that, because I think a lot of times that stuff kind of gets either ignored or pushed aside folks deep background before they enter academia, but it brings so much to what you do. But maybe you can be really explicit then about what your dissertation is going to be about, what your research program is. Yeah, sure. I'm technically like in the biological anthropology program, but my inside minor is food anthropology. And then my outside minor is food and nutrition policy. So I feel like my research interests are sort of broad, but they all connect in my brain, which is important, right? But yeah, so I'm really interested in food systems and agricultural practices and initially how those things impacted food security and um, nutritional status and growth and development of children and adolescents. So that's sort of the food stuff. And then the more biological stuff, I'm really fascinated by the period of adolescence and how it's this really plastic period of the life course where we can adapt to our environment. And one way to do that is through the timing of puberty and the rate of puberty. And so to me, it's really intuitive to understand the sort of embodiment of one's environment during that period of time. And then also 
the trade-offs that are happening that could have long-term um, implications for health and well-being. So I try to tie all this together in my dissertation. So I look at how food security, nutrition, psychosocial stress impact the timing of puberty, but I also have added in exposure to endocrine disrupting pesticides because I started learning about, you know, this new stressor, which is endocrine disruption from toxins in the environment. And I can't ignore that. So that's what I'm kind of focusing on and controlling for the other stuff in Costa Rica, because they use the most pesticides. Well, they go back and forth from first to second place for the most. David's site in Costa Rica was Western Monte... Monteverde. Monteverde. Is that where you're working? I'm not. I wish. I love it there. It's amazing. But Monteverde is very sustainable and focuses on organic agriculture and conservation. And so I'm working more in the areas that are heavily plantation-based, like industrial agricultural sectors of Costa Rica that most people don't go to when they go visit. The landscape is unique because there's these giant areas of agriculture and then there's these also large protected forest reserves Mm -hmm. and so for me i can compare the communities that are immersed in these plantations that use pesticides that are owned by like dole chiquita del monte those big name groups and then i can compare it to the communities in the forest that are sort of protected or buffered from the pesticides due to the forest filtering those toxins so it's are you working in Limon? Yeah, it's really close to Limon. Sarapiki is the county, borders Limon. And then also a county um, southeast, so on the Panama-Costa Rica border um, on the Caribbean coast. So where the Bribri uh, reservation is? Yeah, it's right there. Yeah, I did a little work down there in that region, so I'm familiar with that. And I know exactly what you're talking about, too, the banana plantations and the indigenous populations. A lot of Nicaraguan migrants coming down to work the plantations and uh, Panamanian as well. So not to digress, your research that you have just published is related to all of this. And so what I'm guessing is you did some preliminary analysis using the INHANES, which is the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data that the U.S. CDC collects. Um, I got distracted right before our interview because every time someone reminds me that we have all of this rich data that we could be mining. I end up like looking up my own search terms to see if I should be doing something this summer using NHANES. But why don't you tell us a little bit about that study and what you're looking for in this paper before we unpack that a little bit? So I came to IU and I'd already done my master's thesis on this question, but it was on a small sample in um, Tampa and Tampa Bay area. And so when I got to IU, Dr. Riley said, you know, we should look at this question using inhanes because all the variables are there. And that way we can get a better idea of if this is worth pursuing for your dissertation. And so that's what we did. So we're primarily interested in how food insecurity might impact the timing of puberty. And we're using Minarchy. We could talk about the critiques of the overuse of Minarchy, but it's easy to use, right? It's easy for people to remember. It's easier to remember when you start menstruation than when your breasts develop or you have pubic hair for girls. That's why it's overused, really. It's less invasive. But we wanted to look at if 
Food insecurity is this sort of unique variable that encompasses both psychosocial stress and nutritional status, because those are two things that we already know impact development and the timing of puberty. And so food insecurity could be like a really great opportunity to look at those with one variable. And also for policy reasons, which I'm interested in policy, I think using food insecurity is a term that policymakers understand and recognize, and it takes the blame off the individual because when you say poor nutrition and overweight obesity, people sometimes will blame the individual, you know, why don't they eat better? Why don't they feed their children healthy foods? And that's not really fair. So Look at that use of really good science communication skills of knowing your audience, <laughs> but also incorporating work that we've heard from other folks, like from Alex Brewis and Amber Wudich, and talking about stigma and how the vocab you use can completely change people's minds about a topic, whether or not they're looking at the evidence, but just particular words are a way to like throw people off the really important message you're trying to get out. Absolutely. Exactly. So we wanted to look at that connection, but we also had the opportunity to look at allostatic load, which we were also curious to see if that would be a way to actually look at the physical manifestation of psychosocial stress. So we added that in as well. And then we, of course, can looked at all of the other variables that have associated with puberty timing in the past. So ethnicity, which obviously there's a genetic component, but with that, we were trying to look at more like stress and poverty and stigma, systemic racism, things like that, and nutritional status. So that was the goal. We know what allostatic load is, but not everybody listening necessarily does. So I wonder if you could, one, tell us what it is, two, how you guys operationalized it, because that's interesting. And three, I note that you include milk consumption in there. So for those who don't know the backstory on Andrea's work, you know, you could talk to us about what role milk plays and why that's included in your analysis. Yeah. So, okay. Allostatic load. So that's the wear and tear on the body from continually engaging in your stress response. So that might be like being stressed and then going up and down, or it could be chronic stress, or it could be also the reduced ability to cope with stress from earlier life stress. And so all of this basically when you're using your stress response, you know, it's inflammation and it's energetically costly. And so it can end up taking a toll on your physiological health. And so allostatic load is encompassing sort of long-term psychosocial stress. So that's why it's kind of a cool variable to look at because it's not just in the moment. So you included milk too. Yeah. And uh, that was Andrea's idea, um, <laughs> but it was interesting to look at because the literature on whether milk consumption influences pubertal development and maturation is mixed. So some, some people have said yes, some people have said no. And, you know, it's a high calorie food, it's protein and it has insulin like growth factor. So of course for babies, milk is very important for growth and development. And so it's, it's just an interesting thing to look at to see if it's also in any way influencing growth and development for adolescents too. So we included that just to see, but it was not associated with timing or puberty. So maybe you can take a moment to kind of walk our listeners through and string together these different threads where you have food insecurity, allostatic load, and then you're looking at agent menarche. Tell us about your hypotheses and kind of theoretically the way in which you see these things interacting and affecting one another. 
Okay, sure. So the hypothesis was that food insecurity among U.S. girls would predict earlier menarche. Again, using menarche to measure the rate of puberty. We wouldn't say that necessarily for other populations, but the reason that we predicted that for the U.S. is because food insecurity in the U.S. is associated with overnutrition. And that's because the cheapest foods in our country are the industrial processed high calorie foods that are also low in, in nutritional quality. So what we see is households that are food insecure often are overnourished. So they have an abundance of calories or certain nutrients like fat, carbs, and sugar and sodium, but they also experience micronutrient deficiencies. So we assumed that we would see overnutrition, higher rates of overweight and obesity, and then that would mean more energetic resources to promote earlier maturation. Because if you have enough energy, why not you know, mm-hmm. use it to reproduce earlier or to put towards those reproductive efforts? And then on the other hand, food insecurity is associated with stress. Like, it's like stressful, even if you're a kid, it's stressful to not know if you're going to have enough food at the end of the month, or there's a lot of stigma around it, especially for teenagers. They may not want to use assistance. They might fear judgment. So we definitely see like higher rates of anxiety and stress and worry among households that have food insecurity. And so we know psychosocial stress in early life and childhood is also associated with accelerated maturation. And that's an adaptation, right? It's a way for our bodies to adapt to like a risky environment. And so a risky environment may mean that you have a higher risk of morbidity or mortality. And so why not reproduce earlier and and more often to try to increase your odds that you'll have reproductive success. But what are the long-term implications of earlier menarche? What sort of downstream effects, whether good or bad, are we seeing in populations? From a public health perspective, earlier menarche has been associated with an increased risk for many chronic diseases, both in adolescence and adulthood. So in adolescence, we see asthma, uh, also depression and anxiety. And then in adulthood, we see higher risk for type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and certain cancers. So mostly cancers that are associated with the reproductive organs, but other cancers as well. And the sort of reasons why there's that association are not super clear. It could be those trade-offs that are happening, those energetic trade-offs that could be playing a role, or it could also be that age at menarche and pubertal timing is more of a mediator uh, between the environmental stress and then these longer-term consequences. And it's just a way for us to really look at the embodiment of that stress. What it sounds like is almost the body is being told, we have to hurry up and reproduce because shit may go south real soon. It's a fast life history strategy as though the world is super, super dangerous. And if we don't hurry up and reproduce, we may not be able to. That's sort of the quick and dirty version of what we think is going on. But the results seem to suggest there's a lot of complicated intervening variables, right? Like one of the things that caught me is the idea of marginal food security, right? 
I guess the granularity that you're able to get at in this study is really super interesting. So tell us how you determine things like marginal food security, marginal allostatic load, and what you found. Yeah, so the standard food security survey in the U.S. categorizes households into four categories. So there's high food security, marginal food security, low, and very low food security. And high food security is, you know, you don't answer affirmatively to any of the questions. So you're fine. Food access is fine. You don't have any problems. Marginal is typically associated with like worry and anxiety that your food will run out before you have money to buy more. And then low and very low are more associated with having to not eat the foods you want to eat, you know, make sacrifices, cut meals, cut size of meals, buffer for your children. So I think that a big pro of this research is that a lot of people have focused on low and very low food security, but have ignored that marginal group. And we see that the marginal group makes up a quite large percentage of our population because there's a lot of people that live paycheck to paycheck, but they're not considered low income or they don't qualify for assistance. And so what we found was that marginal food security is what associates with earlier menarche. And, you know, we don't know for sure what's going on there, but we can speculate that it might be that stress of not having assistance, but still struggling, or it could be you're on the border of two socioeconomic groups. And so there's a lot of stress, especially for teenagers, you care about what people think of you. And so it could be stressful. You know, I don't want my friends to come over and us mm-hmm. like not have enough food or we run out of food because we only have enough for our family, things like that. So you found that food insecurity and age of menarche are related and the greater the food insecurity, the younger the age at menarche. But maybe you could talk about another aspect of these results in which you found this relationship was stronger among young girls of color. And so maybe talking about the other factors that come into play. Yeah, so other predictors of earlier menarche was identifying as non-Hispanic, Black, or Hispanic, Mexican-American, and then also having higher BMI. So higher BMIs, earlier menarche, and then also having higher allostatic load, so higher psychosocial stress that's manifested. And with girls of these minority groups, that's sort of to be expected because they are the ones experiencing more food insecurity and more psychosocial stress due to systemic racism and marginalization and the intergenerational cycles of poverty. And then we also found that girls who identified as non-Hispanic Black also had higher BMIs, and it seemed to be that the BMI was mediating the relationship there. And again, that could be due to they have the highest rates of food insecurity. So they are getting those nutrient-poor, calorie-dense foods. And then with allostatic load, it it seemed to be mediated by all three of those things. So BMI, ethnicity, and food security. So what do you view the results from this paper informing public health policy? Well, we're hoping that it highlights the most vulnerable groups of in our country are the ones also that are, are disproportionately being impacted by this quicker life history trajectory. And then since we know that early or puberty associates with all of these risks for chronic disease later, we should be looking at the determinants of early puberty to try to prevent the risk for these chronic diseases. So 
We show in this paper that we need to consider food insecurity as one of those social determinants of these chronic diseases, and that could be mediated through these trade-offs in adolescence, but then also things like systemic racism and discrimination, ethnic discrimination and marginalization are also playing a role here, right? It's minority groups that are the most impacted at every level. Let me just ask you if there's anything we're missing that you want to make sure we pull out of this article that folks should know about. I hope that we look at this marginal group more. And I'll say I teach a class on um, obesity and hunger. And one of the students just yesterday told her own story about her family. Her family was afraid to get off food stamps after her dad got a job. Like he lost his job and then he got a job because there's no grace period there. And so that's what I think is happening. These marginal groups, they're struggling, but they're ignored in policy and they're ignored in sort of assistance because they're not low income enough, right? And then with adolescents, it's really important to me to include them in research because they've been left out for a long time, especially in growth and development research. We've really focused on that early life period, which is great. I'm not, I don't want to take away from that, but this is a really a critical period too, where we're growing rapidly and we're developing. And if you don't have access to the right kinds of nutrients, then it can have long lasting impact. So I want to call researchers to look at adolescents more. So the work you do is very timely and very important, and it could have real in-the-moment life implications, which is absolutely fantastic. But that's also not all you do. As Chris and I said at the beginning of the show, you are one of the student reps for the Human Biology Association. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit with, you know, all of the research you are doing and writing and everything else, you are taking time and energy and effort and putting it into the HBA along with Carly Cheney. So tell us a little bit about that position and why you decided to run for the HBA So I was really interested in like how associations work and how they're run. And I like foresaw myself eventually, you know, wanting to be on an executive committee in the future. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to learn more about that and how it works. And also to network the HBAs. I love that it's a tight knit, smaller community. And so it's a really great opportunity to meet a lot of really cool people and amazing researchers. So that was uh, primarily why I decided to apply for the position. And what we do, we are sort of like liaisons between the student members and the executive committee. So we're, I guess, sort of a voice or a resource for student members. And one way that we try to be a resource is through planning events for them. So we do happy hours every month where we can all come together and talk about our research or what we're struggling with or what's working. We talk about where to find grants and different opportunities. So that's been really great to build our community, which is really important in grad school and in academia as well, but especially in grad school. And then we also plan the breakout session and the student reception at the annual meetings. I love the happy hour. I got to get some more of my students involved with that. Thank you for doing all that. When you're not doing all these million things, I know graduate student life is busy and balance is not a real thing, but we ask it anyway. How do you maintain work-life balance or some facsimile of it or just what do you do for fun? Well, I've gotten a lot better at it, I will say, over the years, especially since I finished coursework in my qualifying exams last year. I've been a lot better at work-life balance. So 
something that I did last summer, I decided that I was going not going to work past five or 6pm every day, which that's not always possible. But I try really hard. And I also only work either one day a weekend, or I'll, I'll just work like in the morning on the weekends and then take the rest of the day off. So find balance doing that. And actually, that's made me a lot more productive. I know like this is my time to work and then I have my fun me time later. And so like I have to get my work done during the day and it's actually been great doing that. Kudos to you. I learned that well after the point you are at by one of our previous guests, Sharon DeWitt, who was like, how many days a week do you take off? And I was like, what? That's okay. (laughs) So awesome. Well, I'm curious, like what sort of fun things do you do when you take Hmm. your time off? Right. Okay. So I actually really enjoy being physically active or doing like laborious things because sitting at a desk all day, every day, just, yeah, I am too restless for that. I have a lot of energy. So I like doing laborious things. Is that what you said? I do like hard labor, like getting dirty and sweaty and, or tedious things with my hands. Yeah. (laughs) Tedious, laborious and tedious things. Academia is not laborious or tedious enough for us. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I like to garden and actually mow the grass, which is, you know, ridiculously daddish of me. But yeah. Yeah, same. I do all of that. I love to garden. I love to be outside. I actually have lots of animals. So I have two dogs, six chickens, two ducks, and a guinea fowl. So I take care of them. Amazing. Um, <laughs> I mean, it yeah. looks like from like behind you, it looks like you have a fantastic yard. I might be wrong, but it looks lovely. Yeah, we do have a big yard. So that helps for sure. And we live right next to a state forest. So we rock climb, you know, two to three times a week. So wait, you live yeah. in Bloomington, right? I do. Where are you rock climbing? Well, we rock climb at the indoor gym mostly, oh, but there okay. are... Yeah, there are places by the lake. There's surprisingly lots of like cavernous places down here. Very Mm -hmm. cool. Well, Mecca, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. And thank you so much for contacting us. Thanks for having me. It was great. (laughs) Have a good one.